up to £3,800 per year for managing 10 hectares of soil and up to £4,600 for managing 10 kilometres of your hedgerows. That's what you could get through a sustainable farming incentive agreement. Find out how SFI can work for you. Visit gov.uk forward slash future dash farming. Conditions apply subject to eligibility, England only. Welcome to the latest edition of the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast with your host, Ash Elwood. In this episode, I sit down with the three newly appointed and arable-focused Nuffield farming scholars to find out a little bit more about them and what they hope to achieve with their scholarships. So thank you very much for joining me. I'm here with Jamie, Sam and Tom, who are newly elected Nuffield farming scholars. Um, So thanks very much for joining us today. Just start off with a little bit of an introduction about yourselves, what your sort of background is and what you're briefly going to be looking into um, for your project. So, Jamie, if you want to kick us off. Yeah. So, hi, I'm, I'm Jamie. I am I'm a third generation arable farmer from Cambridgeshire. So we're currently farming 1000 hectares of straight combinable crops. So that's wheat, barley, uh, used to be all seed rape, but we are in the middle of the flea beetle area. So we don't do that anymore. I replaced it with uh, beans and oats. And uh, my Nuffield Farming Scholarship has a very ambiguous title of uh, doing more with less. So my plan is to look at urban farming, so people who are working on the complete opposite end of the scale to what I'm looking at, basically, or what I do as day to day. Brilliant. Great. Very interesting. Okay. Sam, do you want to go next? Yeah. uh, Sam Watson-Jones. Uh, also uh, uh, an arable farmer uh, in Shropshire. I'm fourth generation um, in that business. Also a combinable crop farm. Uh, we've, also, we've got a poultry unit as well. Um, the bit I got interested in about seven years ago was, was around technology in, in farming, specifically looking at artificial intelligence in arable farming and broadly asking the question, you know, why don't we use AI as a routine part of our decision-making in arable farming uh, in the way that we do in you know, most other sectors of our, uh, of our lives these days. Um, so I've been working in that for the last seven years um, uh, uh, in a startup and, um, and, and the Nuffield really is an opportunity to explore that a bit more um, internationally. So specifically, I'm looking at this idea of of per plant farming um, through uh, using artificial intelligence. And so I'm really interested to see different parts of the world where um, where AI is uh, is perhaps further advanced than it is in the UK uh, and where the ingredients might be right within the ecosystem of that farming environment to um, for, for artificial intelligence and per plant farming to become the norm perhaps more quickly than it is in the UK and, and, and see what we can learn from that. Great, thanks, Sam. And then Tom, do you just want to run through yours? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, hi, everyone. My name's Tom Scroop. I um, yeah grew up in Yorkshire on a small farm, but I'm certainly not, not a proper farmer like Jamie or Sam. Um, uh, I kind of went off and did various other bits, but ended up kind of coming back towards agriculture. And I now run a, a kind of... Um, uh, a startup we build software for for agronomists um, all around kind of soil management and it got me thinking that a lot of what we're trying to do really is not necessarily top down um, giving people it's trying to put 
farmers in touch and helping them learn from each other. And it seemed like, you know, maybe there are other parts of the world again uh, that, that are doing that better than we are or differently from, from how we are, at least. Um, so yeah, really excited. I'm going to be heading to Australia. They do lots with kind of grower groups and innovative ways of funding those over there. Uh, the US, they've got this system of land grant universities, a bit in Europe as well. So yeah, really interested just this idea of how do good ideas get shared and scaled between people at kind of a high level and hopefully about soil, but, but also more generally. Brilliant, thank you. So before we delve into each of your projects a little bit more, um, just like to sort of chat about what the Nuffing, sorry, Nuffield Farming Scholarship actually is. Um, for any sort of listeners that probably have heard of it, but might not be familiar as to the process and actually what, what the projects look into. So Jamie, if we can come back to you, if you could just fill us in a little bit as to actually what is a Nuffield Farming Scholarship? <laughs> to be perfectly honest, when I applied for it, I wasn't really too sure. Um, but the Nuffield Farming Scholarship is, um, in its broadest terms, it's like a travel bursary. So they are there's a fund set up that um, you get given money to go and travel outside of the areas uh, in the UK and go and see what people are doing around the world, hunt down specialists, basically. And then, yeah, then report back to... Uh, do, do you guys know who is we're supposed to report back? Who's the target audience of the uh, big paper we're supposed to write at the end of this? I guess it's whoever in your sector you think is relevant for. Like for me, it might be, I don't know, like the HDB or someone who's set up for it. But for you, Jamie, it might be other arable farmers. I don't know. There you go. It's just generally, it's just generally just put it out there into the world. And whoever whoever wants to pick up our uh, our amazing words of wisdom can. I think, you know, I think they're, they're sort of formally published and you can certainly, you know, you go into university libraries uh, or agricultural university libraries, you can um, you can find like all the past Nuffield um, yeah. scholarship reports. They're all available online. Um, this is this bit's actually, I've been sorry, I've been chatting with the Rupert, the guy who like runs the trust now about it's kind of touches on my topic, actually, about how do you share knowledge, which is kind of what yeah, Nuffield yeah. is designed to do. So exploring podcasts or other ways of you know is it is just a five thousand word report the best way of getting all these incredible insights from around the world out to people and yeah, yeah maybe we might try a few new ways of of, of how nuffield scholars at the well, end of their scholarship get it out there actually actually it's interesting that so we talk about yeah, the, the the scholarship is basically as, as jamie described it's a it's a travel bursary you go away you produce a report and that's you know in many instances that's kind of it but but we we talked about when we were at the the conference tom i, I feel like it should be much more than that actually as well mm. I, I feel i feel like it's you know a lot of that then just sort of disappears into the ether and maybe you know the individual experience is important but how do you create something new off the back of it i mean something yeah. I, would, I would like to see more of is is actually companies created off the back of um off the back of uh, uh learning that happens through the through the Nuffield scholarship it's not to say that yeah. you know, companies and commercial ventures are the only way that impact can be made but but i think mm. it's it's an important way um yeah and, uh, yeah I, 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 that, that happened with one of last year's scholars so helen wyman has now set up a, like she did her Nuffield all around mentoring and she's now set up a business helping to connect people with mentors so it's definitely one way I, yeah it's one of those things i'm interested about how do you scale knowledge startups and companies can be and i think that touches back on another 
key part of the Nuffield. So there is this money and you get sent around a travel scholarship and that's the like core responsibility is do your travel and write a report. But there's also this incredible network. So A, that's really helpful for when you're doing your traveling. It opens loads of doors. So you get more out of your traveling than if you just, you know, say you just self-funded it. You wouldn't have as good a trip as doing it as a with a Nuffield banner. And then also you've got this amazing community when you come back who you're sort of you're part of and um, I don't think there's a special handshake. No one's taught me it yet, but <laughs> no, the, uh, the the travel um, has been it's more directed with the Nuffield as well. I've uh, been more focused and found more interesting places than I think I ever would if I if I was trying to almost do this by myself. Having the Nuffield backing has pushed me into uh, I want to say like uh, more difficult places to get to. I've had to work harder, but they're more interesting rather than uh, what you would do on a normal holiday type of situation. Brilliant. So would you say it's given you access to different sorts of contact or is it just the sort of support of the the name that enables you to get into these places? Um, so the the places I've been trying to get into, the urban farming sector, have not heard of Nuffield, Nuffield Agriculture or Nuffield Scholarship. Um, oh, so wow. it's that I have had to work really hard, but it has been... Because of what I want to look at and how I want to approach this with sort of the Nuffield, uh, what I've got to produce at the back of it, it's made me work harder to get into places. So a lot of places that haven't heard of Nuffield are like, no, we don't really want to talk to you. And you're like, well, I'd actually quite like to talk to you because you guys are really interesting. So it's been more of a driver. Yeah, that's really good. I think for me, cool. it has been a network. I'm, I'm probably maybe doing a like a, I don't know, maybe a more standard Nuffield talking to lots of people in you know, lots of existing Nuffield scholars in like Australia, for instance. So there are enough, there's a UK Nuffield organization, but there's also one in Australia and Canada, and they often send their scholars to England or, or the rest of the UK. So it's very easy to go to a Canadian Nuffield scholar and say, can I, you know, apparently they often just have you to stay and stuff and vice versa. So the network is, is a big part of it for some scholarships. Brilliant. Okay. So Sam, if I can direct this one at you a little bit, when you um, first decided you were quite interested in looking into the Nuffield Farming Scholarship. What is the sort of process for application? How how long is the is the application process and what does it entail? Testing my memory now a little bit. I mean, it's something that, that for me, I've been thinking about for, for years, actually, um, uh, probably five or six years at least. And it's just never quite been the right time um, for various reasons, um, young kids and stage, stage that the business is at and all those sorts of things. Um, uh, but when I actually decided um, that, I, that I was going to do it, uh, you you submit an, an online application form um, and a video. You know, it doesn't take too long. It's not it's not a huge application form. Um, maybe it took know, a couple of hours, something like that. Um, and uh, and then you're. I think from um, from I can't actually remember the numbers, so I won't make up the numbers. But the but the, the numbers are then whittled down to to an amount that that get asked for for interview, um, and so then that is a an in person interview in London, um, and that's a that was a pretty intense experience, wasn't it, guys? Like it's you walk into you walk into a room and there's Without exaggeration, I'm going to say twenty people sitting sitting around in like yeah, a, so grilling. A, a panel a panel situation, and then they just fire questions at you, and um, and they um, 
Yeah, they were they were quite. They, it, it was challenging. You know, I've done I've done a few of those things and 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 a, and a few different interviews, but it, but it was challenging. And it was intense. I didn't give anything away at all. You know, they're a terrible audience. Like they don't give anything away in terms of like <laughs> you answered that question. You know, terribly or or really well. They're just very very stony faced. Um, and then um, and then and then I think they gave. So it was kind of something like one in five, something like that from from the. Um, from the people who attended an interview day, actually got offered a, 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 a scholarship. It's, it's around twenty of us, isn't it? In this, I think it was better. I think it was one in five of everyone who applied. I think. Oh, was it really? I think it's one in two. One you get to interview or something like that. I was because, okay. like, I think it was about hundred applied, forty or fifty interview, and what are we, twenty or something like that? Something like that. Yeah. So it it was uh, yeah it was I mean people I've spoken to a few people about it um, before doing it and everyone said the interview was quite intense and I was perhaps a little bit casual going into it but it was it was quite tough. Um, that that interview yeah. is like the most feared thing in agriculture. Well, as soon as I said I was do applying for enough fields, that more people wanted to talk about that interview than than anything else. <laughs> like everybody, especially in our industry, where we don't get um, that sort yeah. of uh, high pressure in interview very often. I mean, I've never had a proper job as far as I'm concerned. I've always been a farmer. So, um, but yeah, the interview, it's it's not as terrifying as what it's uh, what the rumors are. It's hard. They they make sure that you know your stuff because there, there's um quite a lot at stake for everybody. But it's um it's not as bad as the rumors say. Yeah, I think the key things to get through it is like just really know what your topic is and yeah. be passionate about it. That seems to be the things they were like pushing for me. It's just really understanding, like, why do you care about this? It's not, I don't think it should, yeah, you, they don't want it to be like, oh, well, I'm a bit bored and I just like wouldn't <laughs> mind traveling the world. And I just like, <laughs> yeah. I think they want you to be actually interested in what you're gonna go study. Cause I guess it means you're more likely at the end to then do something with it. Brilliant. Yeah, it does sound quite grueling, but like you say, Jamie, there's not that many opportunities in agriculture that you get that real sort of panel, you know, interview process. So I bet that's quite, quite I interesting guess, to go through. I guess the whole thing really is about push, taking you out of your comfort zone, isn't it? Um, the whole yeah. field experience, and and there, you know, that sort of comes up again and again and again in the the initial sessions that we that we have done as a cohort, and then we've got a week before we before we go travelling to Brazil, and it's all about. You know, forcing you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise have done, media training and speaking in front of people and um, and, and, and things like that. Recording um, podcasts. That's a new recording. One. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so yeah, it's all it's all very much part of the ethos. Great. No, that's yeah, interesting. So Tom, if we come to you last, just about the actual scholarship. Um, mm -hmm. Jamie obviously described it as a little bit of a, a sort of a travel bursary that you're going to research yeah. your topic. Um, and we've heard about the application process. So what happens now? Obviously, you've all been elected. You've yeah. so you, chosen you're a title. The, What's next? You've so you've chosen your title. You probably applied. When did we apply? Like over the summer, I think. And then the interviews are like in the autumn. And you hear early autumn, I think, if you've got it or not. And then the first thing is there's um, a kind of a, a conference. Ours was in Exeter. I think it's in Belfast, somewhere in the UK anyway, that they send you to and put you up where you meet all the other scholars. Uh, you go and listen to all um, 
the scholars from two years ago present their findings. So the Nuffield is like a two-year commitment, two-year journey. Um, so that's like November. Then there's just been kind of Christmas to try and like flesh out your plans, start talking to people and over the this time now, which is what we're in now. And then we'll head to kind of first big, the official launches. There's a conference of all the Nuffield scholars from around the world. Our one's going to be in Brazil. Uh, it moves around all the Nuffield countries. I don't know where the year after will be, or Australia or Canada or somewhere like that. And again, they send you out there. I think there's a week in London before that to prep you. And then basically you're kind of, I think, left on your own um, from that point. So that's like March after you've been awarded it in the autumn before. And then you've got basically 18 months until not that, not this November coming up, but the subsequent November when you've got to present at that conference, you know, the one that was two years later from the one that you started at. So that's the kind of cycle. There's this big 18 month gap to do fit all your travels in that you said you're going to do, which is when they'll, you'll get the money, you know, they'll to pay for all your flights and everything and uh, write up your report have it edited down and published all of that's got to be done before november you know the, the subsequent november so that's the kind of the process and basically there's a bit of structure at the start and the end and then the middle they just sort of say here's your money good luck <laughs> great so there's a little bit of sort of time management and self-management in the middle to uh, get all your travel plans sorted and your research identified I suppose yeah absolutely and I think I don't is there a specified time you have to be away I think you can go away for a sort of a little or as long as you think you need for your research yeah. I think if you did less than about three weeks they'd probably be a bit yeah they like, they like eight weeks I think um, eight weeks is it okay so you've got to fit it in but I don't think they, they you don't have to take eight weeks in a block you know I, I run a startup so I certainly couldn't take that long away and, you know, a lot of the Nuffields are running farms. So you fit it in with your work and your business. Some companies are quite good about giving people holiday. Other people have to take their holiday allowance and use that for doing their Nuffield travel. So, yeah, probably worth talking about it with whoever your employer is before you apply, I would have, I would have thought. <laughs> Great. Cool. Okay. So let's delve into your projects a little bit more. And obviously, as we're going along, if any of you have any questions um, for one of the other scholars, then please jump in. Um, but Sam, interesting, um, obviously, trying to incorporate sort of technology and artificial intelligence. Um, and just during your bit of introduction, you mentioned about per plant farming. Um, so that might be a nice place to start just to sort of explain to people that might be unfamiliar with the term, actually, what, what that is and what that means. Yeah, well, per, per plant farming then to, to, to dive into that is the, is the idea that you're, um, that we're going to be able to look at a field of crops growing in the ground, any, any crops anywhere in the world, and understand exactly where and what is happening with each individual plant. So you go through the field and you can see per plant what is happening, what is happening in that field. So you can identify where all the crop plants are, you can identify where the weeds are, what type of weeds they are. And then when you're looking at the, the, the plants themselves, you can identify um, uh, all the things that that, that um, might be occurring in that plant. So is it under any disease pressure? Is it got any, is it got any pest damage or under any pest pressure? Has it got any nutrient deficiencies? So all the things that a, a human being would, would assess when they walk into a, to a field today, in time, computers are going to be able to, to automate that and do it at this very granular per plant level. 
and then use that information to then instruct other machines to come and take action. So, for example, if you've got a weed in a field, you come out and you take out that weed, um, ideally without using any chemicals, but in some instances using chemicals, but you just apply the chemical or the non-chemical weeding application where there is a weed. So the, the, the ultimate point of per plant farming, if you like, is to get away from this blanket application approach that we have in arable farming, where today we walk into a field, we might, we might visually assess 1% of that field and say, yeah, there are some weeds here, right, let's apply herbicide over 100% of that field at the, at, at, at the same rate. Um, but of course, there isn't a uniform spread of weeds over 100% of that field. So therefore, we are wasting chemical um, when we're doing that. And the same could be said of fertilizer, um, you know, possibly even fungicide, where you are um, blanket applying these things where it might not be required. What you need to be able to get there is a much, is a much more detailed data set. And then once you, once you have that in place, all sorts of things I think become possible for the future of um, for the future of how we grow crops. And one of the, one of the big one of the big things so I've talked about, you know, reducing chemical and fertilizer usage. I think that's the 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 initial entry point. But the long term aim of something like per plant farming would be around increasing yields. Um, you know, when you when you look at uh, I suppose the, the 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 classic example here is you look at how trial plots perform. So trial plots for people who don't know, you know, small areas that are um, where trials are conducted. Um, so these might be you know a few meters a few meters squared, um, where plants are monitored and looked after by highly qualified plant scientists in in tremendous detail. You know, the, if they're optimizing for yield, they will get the fertilizer application absolutely perfectly timed. They'll make sure that all that fertilizer is, is used. They will apply any chemicals that need to be applied, you know, perfectly. And they're literally tending that plot on a, on a per plant basis. Um, but, it's, but it's human beings doing it. And then, and then those, those, uh, those trial plots routinely, um, routinely achieve, you know, two and a half times the yield that is that is achieved in a in a commercial environment, um, and then you start thinking, well, so if the same plant, the same seed, in the same soil, in the same weather conditions, is capable, is genetically capable, of a much greater yield. What's the thing that's stopping it from from getting there? And it's because when we farm at scale, we're not optimizing for plant performance. Um, we're actually optimizing for for machinery efficiency in many cases in our farming system. And so the idea is that technology will be able to take us to transform the system and take us to a point where actually we can do things much more efficiently in terms of in terms of using inputs to, to grow crops and also um, increase the yield. And then and then just one final point around what the you know what perhaps the long-term benefits um, can be of this sort of a, a truly digitized field. It actually comes back to what Tom was saying around knowledge sharing, um, because once all these um, once all these fields are, fields are digitized, you know, you imagine Tom, Jamie, and myself all farming in different parts of the country. At the moment, we are learning um, about what the right thing to do on our farm is from our farms primarily. Um, you know, and we have we have an annual cycle of experience that we're going through. And farmers are often, you know, fond of saying, oh, "I've got 40 harvests to 
to make it to make an impact. But what if what if we could what if Jamie's farm could learn from what happened on on my farm and we could both learn from what happened on Tom's farm. Jamie does something on his field and it works and his yield is 25% higher. Well, what if rather than just Jamie learning about that thing, what if everyone in the network, um, everyone using these AI algorithms learned the same thing um, and was then immediately able to um, to, 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 to apply that on their farm. So you move from having you know, 40 harvests per farm to having every year being the equivalent of tens of thousands of harvests because you've got this collective experience. And, and, and that is an exact replica for how Google Maps works, for example. You know, if I, if I plug in on Google Maps somewhere that I've never been to before, um, it will give me an optimized route. It might give me four or five different options um, for, for routes I can take, um, but it is giving me an optimized route that, that, that achieves what I, want, what I want it to achieve, and, I, and it's supporting my decision rather than controlling my decision. But then, um, but then it is uh, that, that decision-making has been informed not by my journeys, my personal experience, but by the thousands and thousands of people who have traveled that journey or, or a portion of that journey in the past. And the algorithm gets better and better and better over time. And yet that doesn't happen in farming, but I think it will. Um, and so the question is, you know, what are the ingredients that enable that to happen? And, um, and what, can, what can we learn from exploring that in other parts of the world? As we've discussed in our podcast this season, we've faced challenges that have truly tested us and our fields. But even in tough years, it's important that as an industry, we are constantly driving innovation to create products fit for the future. For those wheat fields that have stood resilient, you can count on Iblon from Bayer, a new fungicide active with broad spectrum disease control, yield boosting benefits and leaf shield formulation. You can find out more about Iblon on the Bayer website. really interesting and that sounds like we've got so much potential for knowledge share and for learning it's just sort of tapping into it and accessing it which brings us really nicely onto your project Tom. I feel um, like we should do a joint Nuffield Sam should we just sort of travel <laughs> around together? Yeah absolutely. <laughs> it definitely sounds like there's some connections there but sort of leading on to yours a little bit there Tom yours is sort of looking at opportunities for knowledge transfer um with a bit of a focus on soil health and sort of how yeah. we can we can benefit that and and why do you think people or farmers or people you know growers don't share knowledge as much as they could currently mm. like what are the barriers and and why isn't this going on if there's such big benefits to be tapped into yeah i think um People certainly, lots of people do share knowledge. Uh, I think what I'm interested in, I actually started from a lot of the same point as Sam there about having this big idea about could digitization give us a new way of sharing? But I think there are, that's not to say that no farm is sharing or information is not shared. There are a whole host of ways. You know, in the UK, we have things like monitor farms, the HDB run, where there's one farm and people go visit. There are things like farmer clusters where lots of farms come together, often the government pays for someone to kind of facilitate it and that shares ideas 
even you know a, you know if a farmer writes an article and other people read it then that's knowledge sharing podcasts there's loads of different ways that knowledge is shared in farming i think what i was interested in was the idea that particularly with soils um it feels like maybe we're not getting ideas moving fast enough so it's not that there aren't some people sharing ideas and some innovative farmers sharing ideas with each other but maybe they're sort of all just preaching to the choir you know the innovative farmers and then the kind of the mass of farms are maybe not kind of plugged in or they're not they've, they've they've listened to it and they've decided it's not for them or it's not interesting or it's not relevant for their farm that wouldn't you hear so often that wouldn't work on my farm it's all well it's all well and good them doing it at groundswell but it wouldn't work on my farm so um it's how do you, yeah, maybe they're just right. Maybe I'll come back from my scholarship and just think there's no problem with knowledge exchange. Every farmer in the country is well plugged into all the ideas. They just have done a risk assessment or a cost analysis, and they just genuinely are right that it would lose the money, in which case then the question goes on to the structure and how do we do that? But I have a sneaking feeling, and I'm, you know, we'll see if this is hypothesis kind of proved by my field that some of it is about there's some blockages to knowledge. And that may not be that, you know, farmers haven't heard of, you know, reducing tillage or planting cover crops. It may be that the knowledge they need is how would that actually work on my farm specifically, not just getting a groundswell tea towel saying I need to plant more cover crops, but what mix of cover crops should I put on this field with this soil type, with this climate? Can I learn from that really specific experience? And we can't just keep on saying, we'll just plant a cover crop and work out all the details. You need to you need to really help people with the specifics and and that level of Maybe not quite at, I'm not sure I, I'm going to get quite down to Sam's per plant level, but could you get per field learning? That would still be an improvement on where we are now, which is, you know, per crop learning, maybe, which is which is probably too high level for people to adopt. And is this something that goes on, obviously, with the sort of soil health focus and that specifics as to even per field? Is this mm -hmm. something that goes on currently in different countries or is this something that's, you know, going to be new to all of us sort of thing? I, I hope it's going on in other countries. I may go to other countries and find that they're, they're in a similar state to us. And it's also not to sort of dump on the UK. I think there's lots of things we do really well here. And there are lots of ways of sharing that, that maybe I'll go abroad and think, oh, well, they actually could learn from us. But yeah, I think grower groups in Australia are much older than a lot of the farm clusters that we have here, which is a in the last sort of five or six years, GWCT were a big in part in sort of launching those. But in Australia, they've had them for 20 or 30 years. They were often funded originally, I think, this is from some of my initial calls. I haven't been out there yet, so I'm hoping to find out more. But um, a lot of these grower groups started out um, supported by, uh, they have a, their equivalent of the HDB levy funded, just piped money, didn't sort of facilitate it. They just gave money to farmers to run these groups. And apparently in a lot of areas, those groups have now become literally the social hub of a town. So there were towns, sort of farming towns that were decaying and dying. And these grower groups have become a social focus. And then the knowledge exchange is almost by accident as a part of that round of beer. And that apparently has really driven a lot of the focus on soil. So for instance, 90 or 95% of Australian farms are mintil. A lot of that's because of the conditions, but that that um, the fact they've got that adoption clearly means they've they've spread the idea that this is going to work for me. It's not just someone high up in the Australian government said, you should be mintil. Someone has managed to persuade each and every farmer that it's going to work for them. And I think the grow groups potentially have had a big part of that. Farmers like learning from other farmers and could the networks here and clusters here learn from maybe their funding models? Because apparently a lot of the way those are funded now is those grow groups are what run agricultural trials in Australia. So 
they now get money from Bayer and Basef. They're not they're, they're still completely independent. They're run by farmers, but they suddenly are sitting on millions of dollars to fund knowledge exchange. That seems to be quite a clever mechanism where you're not you're not in in the pocket of all the chemical companies, but you're just using their money to learn from each other. Like well, that seems great. Save the government having to pay for it. It's, it's it's really it's really interesting that funding just directly giving to farmers is the is the most efficient way to to de to develop to develop this learning, um, which yeah. makes sense because farmers know what the problems are that they're facing, and it is yeah. you know not to get on too much of a bandwagon about it, but there is a massive problem with um, uh, with the way that trials are run and validated in this country at the moment, which is either um, it is a chemical company, you know, where they are going to get a certain result. And we've, you know, I won't name any names, but we've had that from the horse's mouth, where mm. some of the data that we've shown them is counter to what their own scientists have, have said. You know, the herbicides didn't perform as effectively as they as they said it was going to. They they, you know, they they the quote was, we never get a negative result from our from our from our trials. Um, because because really the trials are marketing activities you know it, it comes out of the marketing budget um mm -hmm. and and then you know you have yes independent companies that run trials but they are commercial entities for whom the big chemical companies are their major customers yeah. so i think maybe the only similar thing is the aicc trials in the uk Mm -hmm. where it's a big enough yep. market that it's worth the chemical companies giving them you know new varieties and chemistry to try out because that's what dictates what a lot of AICC agronomists would advise. And so that's the only thing that I've seen in the UK that's at all similar to these grower groups. But again, it's a slightly different funding structure. So yeah, it's not necessarily the UK is doing it all wrong, but it's just interesting ways that I think it may turn out that, as you say, where levy, you know, lots of countries have a levy on farmers and farm products and where that money goes, you know, it may be some hard questions for the HDB here. Maybe that what the HDB should be doing is just funneling a lot of that money straight into farmer grow groups and, and having a smaller structure themselves. You know, no organization likes to be smaller, but maybe that is the best use of farmer levy money is just pump it straight into farmer groups. I don't know who knows what we'll find out, but yeah. Great, that's really interesting. And it always tends to be sort of a a method that really sort of resonates with farmers is is farmers sharing with farmers. That that yeah. really tends to be sort of the, the best way to share. Um Jamie, we'll move um across to you to your project, um, which doing more with less. So what sparked your interest in looking into, correct me if I'm wrong, sort of production sizes and how we can be more production with less kit and where are you hoping to start that's quite a a big title <laughs> uh, yeah so i purposely left the title very big because i don't know is the answer to that but my um, yeah. my approach to my nuffield has been slightly different to the other two. i didn't come in with a big idea but my farm and the way i've set everything up has been based on efficiency we're trying to do uh, everything as quickly as possible, which has meant that we have ended up with uh, field corners and bits and pieces that we don't farm because I can't get the kit in there. I can't run it through at the time sort of level that I want to make make everything work for my system. Uh, but my wife, who is not uh, from a farming background at all, we were walking through one of the fields one day and she looked at one of my field corners and went, why aren't you growing food on that? And I'm like, well, because it doesn't make sense for the way that I farm. And she's like, well, but you're, you, you're your job is to grow food on land. You've got land there and it's not doing anything. I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe 
I'm missing something. There's something that I'm missing from my my mindset and my outlook to how I run my farm. So I then sort of just delved into it a bit more. Okay, then what happens or what what do people do when they are growing food on uh, smaller areas? So whether this is container farming or sort of uh, a lot more plots in the middle of cities, how does that work? How do you make a business out of land that I deem out of an area of land that I deem is too small to farm? So from there, I just started, uh, basically it just spiraled into uh, vertical farming. And then you get all the way up to the big areas in Spain where they've almost brought urban farming into the big areas of glass houses. And it's just almost like there's different uh, features of production systems that are so different to mine that there must be thinking and knowledge within that, that as an arable farmer, I should probably know and might cross over. But what does cross over and what is actually appropriate? I don't have an answer to yet. Actually, when I was sat in my interview, for the Nuffield interview, and they said, what do you hope to learn from this? And I go, I have no idea. But if I knew the answer, then I wouldn't be looking at the right thing for me. I have to have a problem that I don't know how to solve. Otherwise, I'd get bored too quickly. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I suppose that's the difficulty of of coming on and quizzing you about projects that you've, you know, not yet delved too far into. It's sort of, well, what do you want to learn? It's like, well, I'll tell you that in however long. <laughs> um, but just looking at your travel plans, you've got some very interesting travel plans. So talk me through your selections and why you've picked those countries you're interested in. Yeah, I started, um, the, the more I started looking to this, so we uh, stopped in Singapore on our way through to our honeymoon when I got married a couple of years ago. And there, there was um, a big flyer in our hotel room about um, how they want to actually start producing their own food for the hotel on top of the roof of the hotel. And I was like, well, hold on. I mean, nobody's told me about this before. And the more you look into Singapore, Singapore produces only 7% of their food uh, so the food they consume within their um, within their limits of Singapore, but they want to up that to 30 percent by 2030. So they're really ramping up production and that's being government led. And I like I can't I can't understand. This is going to start to sound really negative on the UK government and it, maybe it should be. But I can't understand how a government can turn around and go, you're going to produce we're going to produce this much, this much more food in what is essentially a city state. And how you apply that thinking and what that thinking does to food production and how it changes uh, what's happening and the direction everything's happening and, and who's driving it rather than sort of uh, traditional agriculture and what's happening there. And then the, the more you start go down that route and then you end up looking at Tokyo, which um, has always had a food production culture within the city. So they actually produce enough food within the city to feed 70,000 people a day, which I mean, again, you compare that to what I know and so London in the UK doesn't produce anywhere near that amount of food. How is how is it possible that you can get to that state? Is that a good place to be? Should it be more like that? Or is having food production out of the city better? It's just more questions that I don't don't know the answer to. And then the final the final thing that really clicked with me as a question that I want to know more about is the people that are growing food because they have to. So we're very lucky that in the UK that if we want to buy food, we go to the supermarket, we buy food, we, we come home. But there are parts of the world where food is not always easily available. So the one that piqued my interest was Detroit. When Detroit uh, governance fell apart, there was no money from the city to turn the electricity on. And the only way that people could get um, fresh fruit and veg was to grow it themselves. 
So that was a place that went from a first world community almost back to a third world community because you just couldn't get access to food. Detroit has actually come back out of that and gone up back the other scale again as they've uh, the city has recovered from its uh, catastrophic uh, financial situations. But there are more places around the world where they are the, the urban farming is a, a necessity, not a commodity. And I just want to know what that means and how that interacts with what I do. That's really interesting. Yeah, it'd be um, obviously lots and lots of questions um, there. Lots of so questions, it'll be interesting. No <laughs> well, it's, it'd be interesting to see what you find and um, and yeah, whether it's it's good things or bad things and take home messages. Yeah, it's it's quite. A, You'll yeah. probably spark another whole generation of Nuffields, Jamie. It's just going to be people trying <laughs> to figure out all the millions of questions you've left the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so, Sam, coming back to sort of technology and AI technology, um, you mentioned earlier that sort of agriculture is a little bit behind in terms of like advancing tech. And although there is obviously um, products out there that have, you know, starting to implement AI and are getting very sort of, you know, tech savvy for a, for a word. But why do you think agriculture is sort of fallen behind that curve slightly and and what can we do to try and see more of this tech on farm and this advancements? I think it's a I think it's a it's a complex question actually. Um, and um, I think the the stereotypical answer, which I think is incorrect, is that farmers are slow to adopt technology or they're not interested in technology. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think it it, it is. I've got a bias here as I answer this question, but I think startups play a really crucial role in in pushing the pushing the envelope in in how technology is 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 pushed out into the world, um, and you've seen that again and again in different in different sectors, um, and and it hasn't happened in agriculture primarily because there's a lack of investment, um, uh, and so. The technology that comes into farming comes from a very, very small number of companies, really. Um, you know, it comes from a handful of tractor companies and a few chemical companies and, and some seed companies. Um, and, you know, you're talking, you know, maybe less than 10 companies in the world that, that deliver, you know, more than 80% of the, of the tech that comes onto, that comes onto, uh, that comes onto farms. It's the the startup. It needs startups, I think, to provide innovation and new ways of thinking. You know, unencumbered by by massive, you know, by being publicly listed companies or by having multi billion dollar revenue streams tied up in a particular area. But but it's a very difficult space to invest in. Um, it's a difficult space to invest in because it's seasonal. Um, you know, you only get, you only get particularly in arable farming. You know, you only get to have a go at this once every year. Versus a software company that can, you know, just iterate uh, time and time again. You know, software, you know, an enterprise software company, which is, you know, what, what gets a lot of investment. Um, it is, uh, it's unknown to most of the people who are actually in control of the money. You know, the the the, the people who are making those investment decisions do probably don't understand very much about farming um, or farmers, and therefore are more reluctant to 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 invest in it. We particularly suffer from that in this country where 
where frankly farming is is not as relevant as it is in in other parts of the world um you know it's maybe one percent of our gdp you know um we we don't think of this as an investment priority um is the is the is the is the cold hard truth and um and most of the investors in this country have no interest in investing in companies that that are delivering services to to farmers yeah. The part of the purpose of a Nuffield is to go to countries where that isn't the case, and so where we're going, you know, for our for our uh, our contemporary scholars conference, Brazil, it's absolutely not the case. You know, it's a huge part of their economy. Um, it's a real investment priority, um, and you've seen as a result of that startups that have really uh, accelerated um, and received big big chunks of funding. Um, other obvious places, uh, you know, North America is is, a, is another is another obvious place that I'll that I'll be going, and then the other the other two countries I'm going to go and visit are India and China. Um, again, um, I would argue much further on um, than the UK in terms of artificial intelligence development. Um, bigger startup ecosystems, agriculture is a more important part of the of the economy, and so there are more of the ingredients there in all of those countries. I think for this to become something um more, more quickly um and it will be really interesting Sam, to go, go on can i ask you two quick things sorry to take 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 over but i get it just make me think about two things one is do you think it's likely that maybe one like finding of your nuffield not to kind of presuppose it might be that Fundamentally, the UK is a great place to start lots of startups, but it's probably not the best country to start an ag tech startup. And you should basically, if you've got a good idea in ag tech, go to Australia or Brazil or America or India, start it there. And then if you always want to, you can always come back and do the UK later sort of thing. But fundamentally, and that's fine. Maybe we just focus on fintech or whatever else we're good at and services. And, you know, each country does what's fine. And we just accept that we're never going to have a big ag tech. And I guess the second one is, does that presuppose that most agricultural technology I guess I'd be interested in comparing this with other primary industries is going to be some form of not just hardware, but like machinery. Or do you think like what portion is software going to be? Because then maybe we're at less of a disadvantage. But do you think to some extent agricultural technology will always be about big hardware and tractors and sprayers and chemistry? And how does that compare with like forestry or mining or these others like primary industries? So I think so firstly, yeah, not to presuppose, but but that's the camp that I am very firmly in. Is it's I think I think it's almost impossible to 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 grow a certainly a venture funded mm. um, startup ag tech focused startup in the UK. Um, okay. I think if you that's alarming for me to hear. <laughs> if you do have if you do have um, you know we've spoken about this before, but if you do have uh, you know a, 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 an ag tech focused idea, I think you know in the early days you should be thinking. I need to get out of the UK pretty pretty quickly. It's a bit it's a, it's a bit it's a bit depressing to say that, but um, but it's um, I, th I think that is the case. Um, well, it, so just um, I mean I don't I don't exist in the space that you two exist into. I'm more production specialist. But um, is the demographic of UK farmers really affecting that? So I'm we're staying here. We're all very young. I mean the average age of a UK farmer is like twice my age still. So um, is that affecting... I'm always dubious about those statistics because I reckon that's done off who is the person registered to a farm, which is often still that's... the grandfather. I, it doesn't, you I know, would... their children are farming. In, they're not in my... necessarily in the stats. 
in one of my previous careers as a consultant, I did spend a lot of time going to farms and talking to the person who was making the decisions. And the person who was making the decisions was quite often the grandfather. So mm. the, the primary, the person who has to, to fund everything is the grandfather. Uh, I mean, yeah, on yeah. my farm, you only got to go back uh, probably 10 years when we were trying to, I was trying to push for GPS on all my tractors. And my father was saying, this is a, this is a waste of money. I was like, no, trust me, we're going to put GPS on our tractors and GPS control on our sprayers. And we're going to cut our um, fertilizer costs and our fuel costs and our uh, pesticide costs. And he's like, no, I don't want to do it until we, I, I fought through mm-hmm. and got it on the farm. And he's like, now I couldn't farm without it. I'm like, well, yeah. So it is still still happening. Do you think if he'd in that case, was there someone else who he would have trusted as much as you? I mean, clearly you managed to persuade him in the end. But if his agronomist had come in and said, "You need this. It's great," would he have just said, "Fine, yeah, do it"? I I I don't know. In the answer to that, I think I'm trying to look at a, a case where I was probably I was almost fresh out of university and full of good ideas and trying to push for. You said I yeah. didn't want to drive a tractor. I'd much rather it drove itself. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I'm just wondering if part of this is about, you know, and, and maybe it's we as startups, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone, you know, it's easy to blame the customer and say, oh, well, they don't want the technology, they're so short-sighted. But ultimately, my view is it's only your problem if you're not, you know, getting traction. And maybe we need to find better routes to market. Maybe we need to get into these grower groups and get them interested. Or maybe we need to go through agronomists or, you know, maybe it's us as startups need to do better. I, I don't think I don't think the the UK uh, demographic unusually disadvantages us. I don't think it is that unusual compared. I don't think the UK farmers are necessarily massively older than than farmers than farmers in other countries. But I do think we have a different uh, culturally. We have a different attitude towards risk. Um, I think we are we are much more conservative, um, and. Uh, we and and that and that then has an impact on what. Do you mean farmers or investors? Sorry, Sam. Sorry, I mean, I mean, I mean, as a society, you know, right, our, yeah. our sort of our tolerance for, um, for I suppose startup failure, uh, our tolerance for um, uh, yeah, for 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 investment risk, um, is different to 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 other countries, and that you know that goes then across yeah governments. Uh, the investment ecosystem, probably probably farmers as as well to an extent. Although I think there's the farmers are the are the, are the, are the smallest problem that any new technology coming into farming faces because there will always be farmers who will who will adopt. Um, you yeah. know, it might not be a hundred percent of the market immediately on day one, but there's there's more than enough really visionary, innovative uh, innovative farmers yeah. in this country and. You know, I've only traveled, traveled to, to a limited extent, but I, but I think we really do stand up very well against um, against against other countries on on that score. Interesting. Well, thank you very much for that insight, all of you. Um, I wondered before we move on to the sort of last question I've got for um, all of you. Basically, does anybody have any um, questions for anybody else about their projects? And I come in your suitcase. They all sound super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, so the the only thing that I'm sort of sort of poking around and, and looking at everybody else is is how hard have you found it to narrow down where you want to go? I mean, the more I've looked into it, the more the whole world. And I'm, I start I look at how big the travel budget is, and I'm like, I I'm having a cull places where I really want to go. Yeah, yeah. Dad, how long can you manage the farm for? I'm off for three years. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, uh, yeah, I've 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 already thought about you know I need to uh, work out a way of of turning this into a into a regular habit. You know, not going for not going for like eight weeks somewhere, but but actually but actually sort of forcing yourself to go and and travel somewhere and learn something um, uh, every year. But yeah, how, how you fund that is the, is the is the is the question. But yeah, I mean that's the hardest bit I I think so far has been deciding where you're not going to go. Um, uh, it's because there's something to learn everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And I almost started out with a smaller list and now I'm like doing these initial like chats with people and trying to, you know, just just really focus on where in Australia I want to go. And then actually people are like, oh, no, you need to go here and here and here. And I'm like, no, no, I'm supposed to be narrowing down my yeah. journeys. And you're just telling me I absolutely have to go to New Zealand. Or I absolutely have to go to Gallandero. So yeah. I've added in two extra trips and so I've been planning it. I still haven't worked out how to get a pay for it, but we'll get to that. I've currently Brilliant. got a mad plan of, I, sorry, I was just, I need to um, go to Denmark for one of my trips and I managed to find someone who wants to move a load of this. They're moving back to Norway and they need to hire a man with a van. So I'm going to get my whole trip to Denmark paid for by driving this contents of this guy's <laughs> house to Norway via all these farmers. So I'm going to turn up to loads of Dutch and uh, Danish farmers in like a deliver in like a house moving van. I think they might be a bit amused, but that yeah. means I can do yeah. one extra trip. I had, a, I had a couple of weeks in the summer driving around Norway. It was absolutely amazing. Amazing. Yeah, lots of lots of nice farms to go and visit there. Great. Well, I can't even imagine how tricky it must be to try and work out exactly where you're going to go and, and what you're going to see with um, so much choice of great and exciting you know projects to go and look at. But um, yeah, three really interesting projects and would be really interested to chat with you guys a little bit down the line and see you know, what you've found out, what you've worked out, you know, it'd be really, really interesting to see where you guys are in, in 12, 18 months time. Um, so just to sort of round off this bit of a discussion, um, bit of a general question for each of you now, and I'll ask each of you the same question. If somebody listening for themselves or knows of somebody that's got a particular passion in a particular area, um, and is thinking about applying for a Nuffield Farming Scholarship, what piece of advice would you give them to kickstart them? So um, the one thing that has really struck me is that the Nuffield becomes all-consuming. So make sure when you are thinking about what it is you want to look at, that it is something you are happy to throw yourself into. Because what started off for me is looking at small spaces has just grown beyond what I thought was possible, the questions I now have. So make sure that it is something that you really want to look into because it will just it will be all of your life. Great. OK, who wants to chip in next? I think I would just say go for it, to be honest, because even the like application, A, you're allowed to apply multiple times. So don't worry that you've only got one shot. But also the application, even if I'd like not got it at the end of the application process, I'd met a load of really interesting people through it, through sort of um like writing your application, Nuffield are super helpful with that process and you know, get in touch with them first and they'll put you in touch with relevant other scholars so to help you develop your idea just while you're in the application. So even if I hadn't got it, it would have been a positive experience from applying as, and we made it sound a bit fearsome, it doesn't take that long. And <laughs> you know, even if they say no the first year, just learn from that and then apply again with a better idea that you're more interested in or something next year. So I just don't really see the downside in applying. 
even if you don't get it, the feedback that people get from um, the the interview and the application it is people are saying that the feedback's almost better than getting it. You you want to almost fail the first time and get the feedback and come back through it because you learn so much more from the process. And I think, sorry, just to add one more thing. I think we all basically felt like we had imposter syndrome. So don't worry if you're like, oh, well, like Nuffield's not for me. That's definitely how I felt when I got it. And I think, I don't know, some, lots of other people have said that. So you're not the only one who thinks that it's not for you. Just go for it. And who knows, they might award the, they might award the damn thing to you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it's the, so it's worth saying something we didn't mention, actually, is there, there is an upper age limit of 45, which is uh, much more relevant for me than the other two people on this call. Um, but, uh, but, that's, but, but I think you, um, you get, uh, it's, it's valuable at any age. You know, if I'd done this at 25, um, it would still be really valuable, but you get something different out of it and the same at 35 and the same at 45. So don't worry too much. I think perhaps I over worried about finding the absolute perfect time in my career to, to do it. It's, it's an amazing opportunity. Um, and when you actually when you actually sit back and look at the at the at the at your travel plans, you go, you know, wow, what what a what a trip! You know, there's there's so much there's so much potential there. Um, so yeah, just to echo echo what the, what the other guys said, you know, just just go for it and throw throw yourself into it, um, and uh, and and it'll be great. Brilliant. Great advice. Well, thank you very much to Sam, Jamie and Tom. Um, really interesting and inspiring discussion, really, about how much there is, you know, yet we can research and, and how you can sort of help people move forward with the businesses. Um, so, yeah, we wish you the best of luck with all your travels and research. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Maybe we can come back on when we've actually found something out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, mean, would be really I feel like that might take me a while, but we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening along to the podcast and learning more about these exciting projects that the three scholars are about to embark on. If you have a desire to further your knowledge and understanding, the applications for the 2025 Nuffield Farming Scholarships opened on January 24th. So be sure to check out all the details on the website, www.nuffieldscholar.org. We'll see you next time. <laughs>